A few weeks ago, my wife and I heard a knock on our door around 8 p.m. At that time of night, with extremely cold weather that we were having at that time, I assumed the only person that could possibly be outside was someone delivering a package. I was wrong. As I opened the door, I was greeted by two people interested in sharing their religion with me. It doesn't particularly matter what flavor of religion. There are actually a few possibilities it could be, all of which have knocked on my door at various points in the past. And I think it's relatively fair. I'm not trying to mock or unduly call people out, but I think it's fair that if you knock on my door at 8 p.m., you might end up as a sermon illustration. Just uh, (laughs) be forewarned. I'll confess, though, I was impressed with their level of commitment. They were persevering through below freezing temperatures. And I will also confess, though, that part of me did want to say, you have no idea whose door you're knocking on. (laughs) However, because I was much more interested in watching TV with my wife that evening than having a theological debate, what I said was a polite but firm, no thank you, we are not interested. Now, on one hand, these um, young, intrepid evangelists had no way of knowing that they were knocking on the door of a religious professional who's been engaged in the serious academic study of religion longer than, as far as I could tell, either of them had been alive. Since I'm turning 40 this year, I get to say things like that, right? (laughs) Like, you kids, get off my lawn. So... There is, of course, no exterior sign on our house to warn would-be proselytizers, beware a Unitarian Universalist minister lives here. Theological debate is unlikely to go well for you. On the other hand, there is a fairly well-known symbol outside my house that may be on some of your houses as well that basically says we are a Jewish household. As many of you know, my wife is Jewish. Attached to the front doorway of our home is a fairly prominent mezuzah. It's about six inches long. It's colorful. It's difficult to miss if you know anything about Judaism. Mezuzah means a doorpost in Hebrew, and it's a decorative case that holds a parchment on which specific two specific verses from the Torah are written. Um, if you're curious, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 and Deuteronomy 11, uh, 13-21. And if you're Jewish, it is a mitzvah, it is a commandment to hang a mezuzah, and you may have noticed them outside of many Jewish homes. It's sadly unsurprising, despite this uh, clear marker of Jewish identity, and despite the history of repression related to uh, various groups trying to convert uh, and oppress Jews over time, that someone would brazenly knock on our door anyway, presuming that we would be interested in their religion. Presumably the assumption was, mezuzah or not, there could be a slim chance that one or more people in this household might want to hear about my religion at 8 p.m. on a weeknight. They were wrong. There was no chance that we wanted to hear about their religion. All that being said, I don't want to use, again, this platform to unduly bag on religions that have what scholars call a missionary impulse without at least turning the mirror also on ourselves a little. After all, there's the old joke that what do you get when you cross a missionary with a Unitarian Universalist? You get someone who goes around knocking on doors for no particular reason. (laughs) 
Of course, the truth is we, you, use do evangelize. I certainly encourage you. I hope you do and will invite your friends, family members, colleagues um, to come with you here if, if someone might find this religious community, this tradition to be good news. And although we're sometimes more skilled at asking questions than having just one answer, we do have, I'll invite you to consider, a life-saving transformational message. I think Unitarian Universalism is about that. I think we have a life-saving transformational message about how you can join together across differences to work for peace, liberty, and justice for all, um, to work for the common good, as Cole said earlier. And when you compare progressive religious movements like Unitarian Universalism to more theologically orthodox traditions, which tend, not, that tend to do not always have a missionary impulse, uh, one of the um, distinguishing things you'll find is that we um, progressives tend to lean toward persuasion over coercion. We tend to be more open-handedly invitational. If someone might find this congregation and others like it to be supportive of their journey and this season of their lives, we celebrate that. But if we're not the right fit for you for any confluence of reasons, either now or in the future, we wish you well. We are a big tent that seeks to be many things to many people, but we're aware that we can't, nor can anyone, be all things to all people. We believe that you don't have to believe alike to love alike. And we aren't going to threaten you with eternal damnation if you disagree with us, especially since as universalists we don't believe in hell. It's kind of one of our things. But I also understand that most religions with a strong missionary impulse authentically believe, sincerely believe, that eternal souls are at stake. So they think they are acting in our best interest, even if it feels paternalistic, judgmental, imperialistic on the receiving end. So why bring any of this up this morning? Well, this sermon is my annual invitation for us to spend a little time reflecting on religion as such. What is this thing called religion? The truth is, it's hard to say. Religion is one of those words like art that are notoriously difficult to define. And although there is no simple, uncontested definition of religion, I will share with you uh, my top five best definition of religion list that I have collected over the years. They're actually on your handout. There's a white handout uh, in your order of service if you want to pull this out. I made this handout this morning as I was editing my sermon. I realized this is a little nerdier even than usual. I think a handout might help. So, uh, so starting with number five, from a traditional Western perspective, religion can be defined as culturally patterned interactions with culturally postulated superhuman beings. More generically, religion can be defined as an experience of the holy. The holy is something that is set apart from the normal and the ordinary and the mundane, something that is holy. It can be what religion is about. And we're talking about, these are Venn diagrams, they're overlapping, but not totally um, the same thing. Another definition that focuses on experience, number three on the list, is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Uh, religion is about a mystery that is simultaneously terrifying and fascinating. One related metaphor, it is compelling yet repelling, is another way of saying it. One related metaphor, particularly apt for our UU symbol of the flaming chalice, is that in that sense, religion is a little bit like playing with fire. 
It can be alluring. It can be a sense of warmth. It can also be used to scare or even literally burn you, as Cole, again, referenced earlier. Number two, one of my favorite definitions is that something is religious, even if we don't think of it as religious, if it is our ultimate concern. So that if something is your ultimate concern, you tend to relate to it in a religious way. That could be shopping. That could be an addiction, right? That, I mean, in all seriousness, things are mimic religion in that way. And my favorite definition um, comes from probably my favorite religion scholar. If you want to know who I actually, who I actually think today may be on to what is really going on, sort of metaphysically and all of that. I think Jeffrey Kreipal at Rice University is right on the right track. I've talked about him before. His definition of religion is humanity's millennia-long encounter uh, and struggle with the anomalous, the powerful, the really, really weird stuff that does not fit in, that does not make sense. Uh, As Neil deGrasse Tyson has said before, the universe has no obligation to make sense to you, right? Home lot more he said about all of that. To add a few more major definitions of religion from a skeptical perspective, religion has been defined as an illness by Freud, a, a narcotic by Marx, the opiate of the masses, a weakness by Nietzsche, and a projection by Feuerbach. Looking uh, deeper into the word religion itself, the most popular etymology of religion that you'll hear is that it derives from the Latin word religare, with an A-R-E at the end. You'll see E-R-E is the one I've given you, but you often hear this other one, religare, um, from the, that relates to the English word ligament, um, so, such that religion means to bind together. Uh, It's a definition that points to how religious rituals, spiritual practices, religious community can bind us together, make us from individuals into a community. But the case has also been made, and this is what's on your handout, that the more correct etymology of religion is derived from the Latin word religere with an E. Uh, to be careful, to be mindful in the sense of I read my newspaper religiously. That's the sense in which uh, it would mean. And there's a strong argument that this latter sense more accurately characterizes religion in the ancient world, which tended to center on a careful performance of ritual obligation. In contrast, the modern Western sense of the word religion is often about intellectual assent, what do you believe, uh, or an inner sentiment of faith. And it is this distinction between the ancient understanding of religion as more about a careful performance of ritual obligation compared to the more common understanding in the West, at least, of religion today as intellectual belief or assent or um, inner sentiment of fate that I'd like us to reflect on briefly uh, this morning. One helpful guide is the German Egyptologist with the unfortunate name in English of John Osman. Uh, who is perhaps best known, some of you will get that as you look at the handout, who is perhaps best known, there are other ways of pronouncing his last name, uh, who is perhaps best known for a book that he wrote about the memory of Egypt in Western monotheism, published more than two decades ago with Harvard University Press. But if you're interested in learning more, if this sermon makes you curious to go a little deeper, a more helpful starting point is not that book, it's his more recent book, The Price of Monotheism, published with Stanford University Press about a decade ago. 
Dr. Osman's um, perspective on the history of religion emerged from decades of living as a citizen of the modern world uh, with our bias, especially in the West, again, of religion as about intellectual belief while spending his career studying ancient Egypt where religion was more about careful performance of religious obligations. We spent decades living in that tension between the ancient and modern ways of being religious. Living in that tension, he noticed a shift, and this is the second and final thing on your handout. I made a chart to make this a little more helpful for you to see. A shift that took place over time in the history of religions from earlier polytheistic cult religions characterized by many gods, um, limited to a specific culture and language focused on correct ritual observance and passed on by oral tradition, Um, compared to, again, the current dominant model in the uh, Western world of monotheistic world religions instead of cult religions that believe in one God, that see themselves as universally applicable in a cross-cultural way to all times and places, focused on correct orthodox beliefs supported by a codified set of written scriptures which don't shift over time as easily as oral tradition does. Now, some of you will recall last week that we talked about the psychoanalyst Carl Jung's idea of a shadow, the repressed parts of ourselves that nonetheless affect us. Well, shadows aren't just individuals. uh, Cultures and communities hold shadows, repressed parts as well. And when Asman talks about the memory of Egypt in Western monotheism, he is talking about a repressed shadow side of modern religion. Specifically, he notes that although most monotheistic traditions don't typically think of themselves, they typically think of themselves as, we've been the right thing all along, we've always been here, and these other things are deviations. Uh, He says that they don't typically think of themselves as secondary religions, as counter-religions that developed in response to the polytheistic traditions that preceded them, but from a historical perspective, that is precisely what happened. To share with you a little more of my own story, I was raised in a theologically conservative uh, Christian congregation, and although there is still a lot about the Christian tradition that I deeply value, I just not the theologically orthodox part, I bring up that background because although I do not have anything like the expertise in Egyptology that Dr. Um, Osman has, during my junior year in college, I did have the opportunity to visit Cairo. How many of you have seen the pyramids in person? Okay, a few hands. At that point, I had spent two, the two previous years trying to reconcile the conservative theology of my childhood uh, with the new academic insights I was learning as a religion and philosophy double major as an undergrad. And one of my particular interests was the study of the historical Jesus, trying to discover who was he really and what had actually happened in his life. But standing in front of the Great Pyramids of Giza, the oldest of the seven wonders of the ancient world, built a full 2,000 years prior to the life of the historical Jesus, uh, so 4,000 years from today, uh, my interest in, the, in, in Jesus of Nazareth, those, although still with me today, was suddenly and profoundly relativized. Funnily enough, as I sat down in the desert sands and took in this mind-blowing wonder of the ancient world, the song lyric that came to my mind was actually only two years old. It was from a Sarah McLachlan album. Uh, Some of you may remember about uh, a man wearing a cross from a faith that died before Jesus came. 
The song is describing an ankh, which looks like a plain uh, Protestant Christian cross, except that there's a loop or a handle at the top. In the language of Egyptian hieroglyphics, the ankh symbolizes eternal life. For Osman, the most significant aspect of this shift that he traces in the history of religions and that is the move from the ancient religions being more non-exclusive to the increasing predominance of exclusive religions. Of course, ancient non-exclusive religions also made truth claims, but they were truth claims typically made within a tribal cult and limited to a particular language, a particular culture. These are distinct from modern truth claims, which are often made, in a, again, in a cross-cultural sense. This is true for all people, all times and places, whether they realize it or not. Another crucial point for Osman is that these ancient religions, again, were polytheistic. And echoing the insights of the philosopher David Hume more than two centuries ago, polytheism is both far older than monotheism and it has an inherent tendency toward tolerance whereas monotheism has an inherent tendency toward intolerance. That's what Osman means by the price of monotheism. He's just wanting to raise our consciousness of this, of this tendency. Because polytheism has many gods, there's this built-in tendency to have a culture of tolerance, at least internal, minimally, to the local culture. In a polytheistic culture, you can have an altar in your house to your family's favorite god within the pantheon. I can have an altar in my house to my family's favorite god within the pantheon, and it's no problem for either of us. Uh, But traditional monotheism tends to declare alternative views to be problematic, heretical, and unacceptable. And as many of you know, heretical just means to choose, right? It comes from the Greek word heresis, to make a choice. So it just means you're a chooser. You're choosing for yourself instead of just accepting what is told to you by someone else, like a religious authority. Allow me to be clear that neither myself nor Osman is attempting an undue broadside against all forms of monotheism. The, really, the crucial distinction is whether one is monotheistic in the spirit of, this is what I think is true, this is what I've experienced, but you're free to disagree if your experience is different. As opposed to, I have the only truth, and it's imperative to use all means necessary, including force, to make you conform to my belief system. There's all the difference in the world between those two different ways of being monotheistic. Part of Osman's hope is that highlighting our species' ancient heritage of polytheism might be helpful for us in navigating this globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world in which we find ourselves. And although we do increasingly live in these isolated news bubbles uh, that reinforce our own pre-existing prejudices, our world remains nevertheless deeply diverse and inherently inter- inextricably interconnected. To quote Dr. King, we must either learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we will perish together as fools. It's a little bit open which way we're going right now. As the title of King's final book said, Um, Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? I'm also aware, of course, that our tradition is called Unitarian Universalism, right? That could be interpreted as sounding a lot like monotheistic imperialism. One God, Unitarianism, for everyone, Universalism. And there have been times we have been guilty of arrogance along those lines. But at our best, our intention and impact have been more cosmopolitan, if you will, seeking to draw the circle wide. 
to create a big tent with lots of room for diversity of people, of practices, all within the same beloved community. Our goal is to model a way of practicing spirituality, of being a religious community that accounts for the deep history of how religion has evolved over time and continues to evolve. In that spirit, as we continue to reflect on how can we be authentically religious here in the 21st century, I invite you to turn in your hymnals, uh, your teal hymnals, to 1064, Blue Boat Home. I spoke earlier about the breathtaking view of standing in front of the 4,000-year-old pyramids of Egypt. That perspective uh, inspired, again, John Osman to trace this shift we've been exploring between ancient and modern religions. But there's no reason to think that the paradigm shifts will end there. This next hymn is about a similarly breathtaking perspective of realizing our place on this one planet, on the periphery of one spiral galaxy that is one of more than two trillion, not billion. Carl Sagan was still thinking too small, right? We now know it's not billions, it's trillions of other, not solar systems, but galaxies in the universe. So please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together about this global, this cosmic view of religion that we seek to live into. So in the spirit of drawing the, the circle wide, there's an old poem some of you may know called Outwitted. It goes like this. They drew a circle to keep me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love, love and I, we had the wit to win. We drew a circle. We drew them in. So as you continue your journey. May you continue it in that spirit. May you continue it in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. As you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.